creeds and criticism meet. of reference podcast. Welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Nick and you are Allison. Yep, and Amy. We, yep. And I am drinking a Lagunitas brown sugar beer, Ugh. which I'm going to make Allison take a sip of because that oh, is great. our custom. Every time we uh, or I open up a uh, bottle of beer, she has to take a sip. She does not like I it. I don't like beer. He makes me... I People don't believe me that I know beer so well because I have to take a sip of everything that I he ever gets, and I hate beer. I mean, so. it's, it's just... And also... How did um, we even start this tradition? Like, I, I think I wanted to convert you to You my, know what? And I think I kind of wanted to be converted, but it just never happened. So she sticks to the hard liquor. We're and, traditional uh, people. <laughs> I, I prefer beer, and that respect so anyway uh that is our intro i'm good with that and so I, that <laughs> is what i'm drinking it's it's a really good beer you should go buy it and it's actually i might yeah. add in a mug that was my grandmother's and there's another one from my grandpa when they went to germany well i'll i'll drink to them while you introduce the roadmap okay so what do we have for today we'll do our book corner we'll introduce oh. some of what we're reading in school oh crap what book was i gonna do oh yeah i know what book i'm gonna do nick now remembers yeah, his I, book I, I, anyways yeah. first we're gonna do the book corner and then we're gonna launch into the dreaded first timothy 2 passage. the big text the only text yeah the only should... text or maybe the most important for some well, at um, least the one that gets thrown around the most on the internet yeah um i mean it's all scripture and i'm sure all equally important is it is it all scripture? Anyways, oh, okay. roadmap. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to go through First Timothy. We're going to introduce you to the contemporary debate. Um, just briefly, we're going to do the context. We're going to go into some of the critical issues. We're going to go through the passage itself. Go figure. Yep. And next time we'll do First Timothy 3 because there's lots of goodies in there. Yep. Um, then after that, we will just say goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye is a good is a good word. So... Book corner, uh, rock, paper, scissors, who wants to go first? You can go. I can go first. Okay. So for my directed study with Tommy Givens and Chad and Banning, we are, we just finished John Barclay's Paul and the Gift, which recap of last time real quick, uh, basically argues that gift in the ancient world is not merely about favor. It also induces reciprocity. It refers to economics in some sense. It refers to incongruity. It refers to benevolence of God and all sorts of things. And so... Barclay went through five Jewish texts, Second Temple texts, and then we spent, uh, we get to see an action, so he goes through Galatians and Romans. Doesn't go through any of the fun texts, like Philemon or Corinthians or Ephesians, because he doesn't think Paul wrote Ephesians. But, uh, basically he argues that, uh, that Romans, especially the language in Romans, polyvalent, it's, it's, uh, the, the gift of God is eternal life, that's charis, that's the big word we're talking about, or he's talking about. And the, the work he does is fascinating because he pushes us back to an ancient concept that we don't think about. We're first world kind of thing. We, we don't think third world uh, in that sense. Uh, my, uh, a good friend of mine, when I told him this idea, he's like, oh yeah, that's how I think. And so when you give a gift, you're intending to induce a relationship with the other person or the, the character of the gift calls into question your character. So it's not as if they're inseparable. Oh yeah. I remember like he would feel uncomfortable when we give him Christmas gifts. Um, just because there was a 
an expectancy. If I, if we gave him a gift, it meant yep. he had to do something. Yeah, and that's that's very similar to Paul's context or Paul's context. And so when you get into the language of Christ being a gift in Ephesians, or the Christ event, or the Christ gift, and what that means, uh, you you get into some very interesting theological territory. The only issue that we we talked about, and we spent a good forty five minutes on this, was on what is Christ and faith, the relationship between Christ and faith, the famous Christus. Uh, pistis Christi debate. And that has significant nuances and connotations and stuff, but... And that, I believe in imputed righteousness. I don't. But you get into a really interesting concept of, is Christ the faithful one in, in uh, context with the Old Testament, Old Testament history, theology, stuff like that? Or is it about our response to Christ? And so Barclay gets into a lot of that. Okay, great. Yeah, I have infinity reading with Joel. Um, it never ends. But... Uh, one that I'm reading through right now, so I won't talk about too much, is Watson's text, Church and World. Um, it's great if you're into theological interpretation of scripture. That's um, Francis Watson, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I highly recommend this book. Um, something that I found more interesting, uh, or at least more stuck with me, and I've been kind of mulling it over, was an article um, called Reading the Bible with the Eyes of Faith, The Practice of Theological Exegesis by Richard Hayes. Um, and something that kind of I've been thinking through is just how uh, the writers of the New Testament use the Old Testament and how sometimes it's good to think about maybe worlds overlapping. So let me give you an example. So think about, if you want to look these up, go ahead, look up Isaiah 35 and Luke 7, 18-23. Um, now in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist asks Jesus a politically loaded question. He asks whether he is the coming king, and he's going back to Psalm 118. Jesus' response really only makes sense in the context of Isaiah's portrayal of the eschatological restoration of the nation, back in Isaiah 35 I was telling you about. Now, what's interesting here is, in that text, um, it's about God himself leading the procession of liberation. Hmm. Now, that's interesting, because Jesus is putting himself in the place of Yahweh. Hmm. hmm. I wonder what that means. Um, Unitarianism. So, <laughs> no. Or he's revealing himself to be God. Hmm. We're, and so it's in a sense, we're being invited to open our eyes to see the truth of the gospel that was told to Moses and the prophets and Jesus. So it's kind of an interesting thing, what the text is doing there. It Jesus hasn't come out and, say, and said, I'm uh, Jesus Christ, the uh, third or second, depends on which church tradition you're from, um, second or third person of the Trinity, um, come worship me. Um, instead, you just have this interesting thing where there's one God and Jesus is God, but he talks to the Father. Yeah. So, and there's even more involved. There's actually an implicit invitation for us to respond to him. So, very, very interesting stuff, and I hope that even in our text we can think in those terms. Hmm. Yeah, so Nick, do you want to tell us maybe about what's going on with the egalitarian, complementarian? Yeah. What is egalitarianism and what is complementarianism? Well, egalitarianism at its most basic is that women and men are individually gifted to serve in the church to whatever God has called them to be. Yeah, that's egalitarianism. It's yeah. about mutuality, um, not about... No, I won't submit. Um, it's actually about, yes, we will both mutually submit to one another. It, it's based on the principle of what we would say is mutual deference, mutual uh, of yielding and love. It's based on if a woman is gifted to preach, teach, be an elder, be president, be a mom, whatever she's called and gifted by God to be, she should be. 
And complementarianism uh, says that men and women are ontologically equal, but function, but the woman is functionally subordinate. And so the woman uh, may serve in the church, but always under the headship or the authority of an elder or her husband or however that works. It, it depends on which complementarianism you talk about. So I don't find that the second uh, argument compelling, but the first one is what we're mostly going to be talking about. And so now we get into... Yeah, our perspective is we're both egalitarian. Um, we were within the complementarian camp before at one point or the other, which you can re you can listen to a little bit of that in our first talk. Yeah. But yes, so you will. We are, we are approaching this text as egalitarians. We are not yeah. going to pretend that we are these ro robots of neutrality. We are coming from a certain location yeah. in, in time, and we yeah. are egalitarians. And there's nothing wrong with that, provided we're honest with that, and provided we've done the research to be confident in it. Yeah. And I would respect someone of the opposite side who did, who felt they were doing the same way. And so, um, and bo both of us really became egalitarians because of our convictions of scripture. And oh, I was an egalitarian or a complementarian for a long time. In fact, I thought it was what kept the universe together, what kept every, <laughs> how the world worked. And then I, I just thought I, that's what the Bible said. Yeah. Then I went back to the Bible and was like, well, you know, this, this doesn't make sense and all that stuff, but that's, that's a whole different yep. podcast series. So the critical issues, um, when we approach one Timothy two, or even the, the entire thing of one Timothy. Yeah. There's, there's so many here and it's interesting. This whole, this whole discussion is oftentimes framed in such a way where one has to deal with 1 Timothy 2. Yeah. And I really think that a better approach is to look at the scriptures more holistically and not subsume everything under 1 Timothy 2. Yeah. I think that creates, in a sense, a functionally a canon within a canon. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, this is where I think the debate is at. And you have whole monographs written about this one specific pericopier or paragraph in the bible you don't have that with say 1 corinthians 11 or or other pertinent texts it's always always comes down to one and everything gets filtered through this lens and, of this one text yeah and part of that is i think we are wired um in our own culture to think more um propositionally hmm. i think first timothy two twelve um reads like a clear proposition to people it's about gender it's a clear um some people think it's command. Yeah. And so, you know, ergo, you know, this this is the more clear passage that we're going to subsume other less clear passages because well, they're embodiments and examples and narratives. And those are, by definition, to some people, less clear. So I think that's what's going on here. Yeah. And, and then on the flip side, you get the problem with people like me who are trained in narrative. When we see a woman used in a specific narrative light or as a literary device or how or as an example, that carries... A significant amount of force and so when we get to the proposition the narrative narrative and the proposition are set in tension with one, one another and there's not an automatic kind of subordination of one text to another and so that's something where i come from yeah and it was kind of what i was talking about with my reading before um jesus did very little if any coming out and saying propositional form i am jesus i am god i am the second person of the trinity or third person of the trinity he does a lot of showing you and it's yeah. up to you to respond to it. Yeah. And so... There's a reason he's, he's spoken parables. It's not... He wants you to actually think about well, what he's saying. and parables are a little bit more disguised. But yeah. I think some of this isn't supposed to... In the big picture, we're talking about other passages and gender. Yeah. Some of them are not so disguised, frankly. Um, yeah. It's really... We're used to, in our culture, looking for a certain kind of clear proposition. And on top of that, I think sometimes our own culture blinds us. 
And I think all of us have to be um, vigilant and know that we do bring ourselves to the text for better or worse yep. and to acknowledge it rather than hide from it. No, exactly. All right, now to launch into some of the context of our passage. And by context, um, we're primarily going to go through the book itself. Um, why is Paul writing? So I'm going to read to you the introduction, um, why Paul says he's writing, and I'll read the conclusion, but there's quite a bit more in between that gives us a clue as to what um, could be the occasion. Um, so let's read, I'll read from 1 through verse 7. What translation is this? Do you know? Um, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, maybe we'll also introduce some of the NIV. The ESV is the more biased version, so hmm. <laughs> the new biased version. Yeah. But anyway, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines. Um, ESV says men. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some in the ESV men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be like teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So in the intro, it's about... Um, false teachers that want to teach things that they don't really know much about. Yeah, it's different doctrine, essentially, if you want to be really wooden about it. Yeah, and I mean, well, it, I mean, Paul says these people are making a shipwreck of their faith um, yeah. in uh, verse 19. But skipping over to 620 through 21, which is the last two verses of this letter, Oh, Timothy, guard what had been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Interesting. Hmm. Which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, it's not just though the intro and conclusion that say this letter is about false doctrine primarily and um, not just about that, but how, how to live. Like, yeah. it's not just a negative. It's really about um, how, how to live under good instruction how to be with conscience, um, stuff like that. But, you know, some of the other indications that this is about false doctrine, um, you can look at um, verse 1, 18 through 20, uh, chapter 4, 1 through 8. Specifically 1 to 20, because you have spe people specifically named Hymenaeus and Alexander yeah. who are delivered up to Satan. Yeah. That sounds like 1 Corinthians 5 where the incestuous man is literally kicked out. And so this is harsh language used of people who are doing really bad things and teaching really bad things. Yep, and just in case you're wanting even more evidence, 5, 11 through 15, 6, 9 through 10. So, tons. It's all over the letter. And actually, interestingly, throughout this letter, a lot of it's about women. Hmm. Um, specifically, women teaching false doctrine. Uh, men are also named, but they're, it seems like this is a very big problem. Yeah. Um, there's some other things we could go into huge detail on, but we're not. Um, what is this heresy that's being taught? Um, some scholars say it's proto-Gnosticism, yeah. um, especially that last line, falsely, false knowledge or whatever. Um, you have some people that were speculating that this is part of the new woman cult. Yeah. Um, it could be the uh, Artemis cult. Um, I mean, that's one of the 
wonders of the ancient world that's right there in Ephesus. And it was where Paul was driven out on occasion of great is um, Artemis of Ephesus in Acts 19.28. Really, it, it doesn't make that much of a difference which false teaching it is. We just know that this is about false teaching. Yeah. So, but really, okay, so... We know that that's the broader reason and occasion for writing, but, you know, it, it is also about just how to live a good Christian life. So the first part of chapter two, the one that the part that doesn't get much press, I'm just going to read the first, you know, what the heck? We'll just read um, till verse seven. First of all, then, I urge the entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all people, all men. Yeah. So ESV loves saying men. Um it's out upon its people. Yeah. The kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's important. Remember that this is about tra- leading a tranquil and quiet life to the whole church. He says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and and humanity, the man, the, yeah, they love saying man, it's Anthropos, Christ Jesus, yeah. Christ, G- the, the, yeah, the yeah. man, yeah, they like saying man, 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 but it's humanity, it's Anthropos, it's not an heir, which is male, yeah, um, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time, for this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, so what follows next is um, telling some, some uh, specific examples on um, how not, what not to do, um, what's not leading a tranquil and quiet life. So um, he tells, and what to do instead, uh, he tells men to lift up holy hands. So don't fight. Um, I'm thinking women probably weren't involved in a lot of his fights, um, but surely they shouldn't do that either. Um, women are told to dress um, in appropriate ways. Um, probably this one isn't about modesty you have that in other passages in terms of don't you know cover up it's probably more in terms of don't um flaunt status symbols like don't have gold braids in your you know hair especially in an economic environment where the flaunting of gold golden braids is essentially a sign of of pure wealth and pure power uh when most of the ancient world did not have that sort of luxury and so it's a way of saying yeah i'm I'm the top dog of, of this just by simply walking in the door you've essentially assumed a status that well i mean just is unheard of in church you don't assume a status you come to church to be church yeah don't be don't don't be like given over to status symbols like flaunting your authority or who you are or your wealth like left and right that's really all about what this is all about and again it goes back to really leading a life of tranquility and quiet and I'm going to add, um, specifically, he says um, to make basically prayers and petitions for those who are kings and those who are in authority. And especially in this very tough election time in the United States, mm-hmm. we need that more than ever. More than ever. Yeah. Um, a lot of us are not happy about Trump being president. Um, a lot of us wouldn't have been happy if it was Hillary. But nonetheless, um, instead of um, being violent or you know beating down people who disagree, whatever you're leaning... Um, let's let's go to prayer and let's defend. Yeah. All right. Starting with verse eleven, because context, context, context is love. See, Chris says context is queen. Uh, verse eleven: A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise, assume, wrench, control, etc. 
dominate over a man, but to remain quiet. And so <laughs> those are the two kind of verses we begin with. In verse 11, we have the same word used to refer to um, living a calm or quiet or unassuming life in verse uh, 2. That is exactly the same word used in verse 11. Let the, a wife be at this exact term. And so this is not a, a, a word referring to utter silence. It's a word referring to being receptive to listening versus being a, a, a chatty Cathy. As as being a good student. Yeah. A well-bred student in that time yeah. learned in quietness and submission. And ask questions when he or she had to. I mean, Aristotle, you know, the Aristotelian method and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, but you get a sense in which be at rest learning. And so it's, it's, it's a great, it's, you're actually told to learn. It's the only imperative in the passage, as far as I can tell. Yeah, so the ESV actually disguises a bit um, that the only imperative, meaning the command lingo, yeah. is let women learn. Instead, they have something that sounds a bit more... Um, a woman must, learn, must quietly receive instruction. It's like, no, let a wife or a woman learn. That's it's an it's a there's a force to it that's not felt in the ESV, and so just wanted to make that clear. That's a verse eleven. So entire or all submission or all submissiveness and stuff like that. So they, they modify one another there. So, but verse twelve is where the big hangup is. Let a wife or a woman teach, or I'm sorry, a, a woman or a wife. I do not allow a woman or a wife to teach or exercise or control or dominate over a man. She must be at rest. Same word. And so basically this. There's a there's uh, a decades worth of scholarship on what this verse actually means. You have three or two contested terms here. You have epitrepo, which is uh, permit. Uh, it's a present. Um, it's a uh, active voice. Present active indicative. Yep, present active indicative. And so it's it's not it's not a perfect tense. It's not you know. And so there's. It's so it's kind of basically is it. Some people make it sound like it's this completed absolute thing, but really it's more like I am not permitting. Yeah, it's 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 very ad hoc centered. And so, I, yeah, Paul's. I don't think Paul's consciously thinking like, oh, I need to like make sure this verb doesn't commute, com like make it sound like it's universal. I think he's more just saying, just in a normal way, this is what I'm not allowing right now. Yeah, I mean, you have the same word, or yeah, the same word used in in the Synoptic Gospels referred to Moses permitted you to dismiss or divorce your wives. And so th there's a bit of flexibility with that. Um, but uh, th the main thrust or the main debate is on what authenteo, the infinitive, means to domineer, to exercise authority, to uh, open any translation, you'll find it a, a different rendering of the term. Yeah, my NIV has assume authority. Yeah, which is probably closest to it. And so in the ancient world, you have, I mean, if you want to go etymologically, what this word means at its most basic level, autos means he, she, it. it it's a, you know, and so authenteo, and you also have other ways of expressing it. So it's a combination of terms. But at its most basic level, the infinitive means to do something to another person. And so right here you have... And it's got a negative slant. Yep, authentane andros, husband or man, to do something to a husband. And you do not exclude or prohibit something against another person if that thing is good. That's kind of a basic kind of thing we can all kind of understand. I do. And so when you talk about to domineer or to authentane a husband or, or, a, um, or a man, you get a sense in which this is already a negative term in, in the context of... of 
false teaching of two men already having been kicked out by Paul and were handed over to Satan, which is even worse. Yeah, and so, like, this is also, by the way, that one word that it appears only here in the whole New Testament. And wisdom literature refers to murderers. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, so basically yeah. in other literature, like, around and before Paul's time, it's and it's negative. It can be for a murderer, like Nick said. Um, it's we, only three about three hundred years after Paul, where yeah, it but, has a yeah. positive connotation. Yeah, but even That's in the time late. at Paul, you have in reference to overpowering a slave, you have references. I mean, we could get into all that, but if you want to know, just uh, just email us yeah. or tweet us. But suffice or to say, Payne. yeah, or, or, or yeah, Philip Payne or Cynthia Westfall's book, um, and also you have the issue of the conjunction ude which links to teach and to do something to a man. And so you get a sense in which this is not a two separate things. This is one thing, uh, to, like a hit and run kind of thing. We understand those not as two separate things, but as one activity conjoined so together. So like a certain kind of teaching. Yeah. So to teach or, or nor uh, control or dominate a man. And so this is not positive stuff that Paul's talking. He's actually condemning negative behavior on the part of, these women who are mentioned previously in the passage who are adorning themselves with gold or pearls and stuff like that, who are flaunting their wealth or their status against men and using that to, I would say the, the proper term is probably assume a stance of, I think, BDAG, the common lexicon defines it as assume a stance of independent authority, a, a sense in which you are separate and yet above another person. And we all know if you read Pauline theology, it's, that's not a common way that Paul thinks. In fact, Paul seems to really downplay that. In Christ, there is neither this nor that. There is a oneness to the body. So when you have a person... Galatians 3.28. Yeah, Galatians 3.28. In Christ, you also have um, without... And so you get in, in the sense in which um, the word itself is so negative that to use this as a prohibition against all women is simply exegetically, lexically, philologically just untenable. There, there's no way this word means women are forever prohibited from using authority in a positive sense. In fact, Paul is condemning a negative use of authority or usurpation or control or dominance. Yeah, and I mean, some people will say, well, how come the women are the ones that are told to do that? Well, you know, how come the men were the ones earlier told to lift up holy hands? Well, we like to fight with our hands. That's kind of a... Yeah, there's that. <laughs> but I mean, okay, so this letter is addressing a specific situation and it would seem here that you have women that are teaching in inappropriate ways. Yeah. Um, ways that are not becoming with living a life of tranquility and quietness. And that's what Paul's, you know, in the middle of talking about. So, um, why men, women? Well, why not? Like, he talks about men in other places. Why does he sing about men in verse 20 in chapter 1? Yeah. Why not? Why does he sing about the women? It's like, no, these are, these are context-specific situations. Why? Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nick is probably not going to be wearing his braided um, gold hair anytime soon. No, I have enough gold on me and it's around my fingers. So thank you very much. For that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's see. For verse 13. So coming off of that, so I'll just read it through and I'll switch to the NIV for fun this the time. The NIV actually gets it more accurate than the ESV, which I... Yeah, in our but, opinion, yeah. yeah. In our opinion, yes. Uh, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach nor to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Oh, well, that's interesting. I mean, is that does that mean that um, Paul's trying to appeal to this um, 
created order, this universal created order um, back from Genesis to ground um, the reason why women should be the only ones who submit to men. You know, never mind that other passages tell men to submit to, like Ephesians 5, uh, 21 or 1 Corinthians 11. Or, or that husbands do not have authority over their wives in 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah, let's just ignore yeah. those. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to those later. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Now, the four um, in Greek is gar, and it can be used a lot of ways. Um, sometimes, actually, it's not even translated in, in Bibles. just depends on how it's functioning. Um, in the sense that the ESV and a lot of Bibles have, they make it as more of a because that makes it sound more causally. So um, if you think of it in terms of because Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived with the woman. So it, it makes it sound like um, this is why you, women can't um, teach or exercise authority. Yeah. But there's another option. It could be introducing an example. So, for example, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now that changes things a bit. Yeah. Um, now we're launching into some new territory than what a lot of people um, like to cover. Um, and he is going back, he is hearkening back to Genesis. Um, I'll go into verse 14. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So in our reading, um, what he's doing here is saying, you, um, women need to stop this bad behavior that they're doing, specifically um, teaching in an assuming way. Um, for example, um, here was the situation with Adam and Eve. Eve was the one that was deceived. And in Genesis, yeah, that's true. Um, and Adam was the one that was created first. Yes, that's true. But what he's doing is an interesting thing. Um, in the Genesis narrative, uh, the, they don't highlight the fact that Adam was created first in order to show some sort of um, male supremacy or or, or even to try to teach a lesson that women um, shouldn't teach in an assuming way. That's nowhere in the Genesis narrative. Um, what is, is highlighting the fact that um, Adam was lonely. Yeah. That's in the Genesis narrative. Um, Paul's doing something interesting here where he's retelling um, part of the Genesis narrative to fit his own situation. It's not about, he's instead of doing Adam's loneliness, he's highlighting um, the deception of the women um, in Ephesus. So that's an interesting move that he's done here. He's saying to the women, and really you can say to any false teachers, guess what? Um, you weren't the one that was first created, and you guys were the ones that were first deceived, or at least Eve was. You guys are acting just like Eve. It's typology. Yeah. It's, it's like what Paul does in Romans 5. It's not to say all men literally cannot hold office now because they are like Adam. Instead, it's using Adam as an example or as a type to contrast. Like Eve is used in or in verse 15, which you'll get into, the woman being saved and stuff like that. That is a reversal. As Christ is the reversal for Adam, so Christ is also the reversal for Eve here. This is, this is egalitarian theology for Paul. He's treating both people differently as types. Adam functions as a negative type. Eve functions as a negative type. Paul is an equal opportunity offender. If it serves his purpose to use Adam as a trope or as a type, it serves his purpose. And he does that in Romans 5. Yeah, very exclusively in Romans 5. And then in one, in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 11, where he talks about, uh, uses Eve as an example for false teachers. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so it's like, these these Adam and Eve fulfill a negative trope, but they are not exclusive. We do not live under the reign of Adam and Eve. We live under the reign of Christ, who delivers us. 
Yeah, but I mean, for his purposes here, he's basically pointing out and saying, um, you guys in this situation are acting, you guys are deceived just like Eve was. Yeah, Eve was deceived by the serpent. Yeah. And that that's the most basic thing. I mean, that's actually a pretty straightforward reading of Genesis. She was deceived. She bought the lie. Doesn't mean that all women are easily deceived or that he's making any statements about that. People any, read that in. Any more than all men are, easy, or are guilty for Adam's sin. Yeah, and something else sense. to add to, like, people make a lot about Adam being the firstborn son and that entailing that um, he's entitled to all these um, privileges. privileges and the same carries over to men. But, I mean, really, the Genesis narrative doesn't seem to draw that out. It's not really stated here. And, I mean, it's interesting. God seems to have a habit. It's almost even its own pattern of not picking the firstborn. Like, yep. Moses was not the firstborn. King David was not the firstborn. Like, Israel was the, the least, and Egypt was mighty and wondrous, and God chose Israel, a fledgling little multi-ethnic community, out of a great and powerful warlike nation. Yeah. God does not seem to like the, the big and the powerful and the strong and the firstborn. All yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob and Esau is yeah. another example. I mean, even Jesus. I mean, Jesus born, you know, lowly in Beth in Nazareth. Yeah, so, you know, first, you know, God does not have a tendency to pick, quote, the firstborn, or you could say others that are also privileged. He just doesn't, he seems to like people that are underprivileged. God doesn't seem to show partiality. In verse 15, um, I think Nick covered this earlier we have um but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with propriety now this word is sozo which is sal this is salvation word for in um, verse 15 it's paul's standard word for deliverance or for liberation from uh, an oppressive situation yeah and he's not like undoing all his theology ever um <laughs> saying that yeah everyone's saved by you know faith in jesus christ um no, no. And except for women, they have to be saved by having children. Um, he's not saying that. Um, there's a very interesting understanding, and we are in Genesis, and there seems to be um, one woman um, who was made a certain promise. <laughs> Nick, you want to explain? Well, I mean, I, I'd actually prefer to get your thoughts on this, because okay. I, I still haven't fully worked out what I think yeah. 1 Timothy 2.15 is talking about. But you have typology, the smashing of the serpent's head, the yeah. proto-evangelion, and stuff like that. And Paul is essentially, I, I think I'm using ben, Withering, ben Witherington's phrase. By proto-evangelion, he means um, the the early the gospel in its early form. Yeah, the, the seeds of the gospel were sown in, in Eden, in Genesis, on the expulsion of, yeah, of the people. Yeah, um, God was comforting... Adam and Eve and saying, yes, um, basically the fall happened. This but... sucks right now, but the the seed of the woman, I think it is, will crush the head. And so you're... And that you, happens. Yeah and, yeah. and so what Paul is doing here to quote Ben Witherington is Paul is doing biblical theology. He's taking us back and going, look, see, the woman was deceived. The woman happened, but she will be saved because of the childbirth. And there's a weird play um, between like a plural and singular in verse 15. Yep. So he's actually, so he's addressing all the women in this passage, but also um, switching into the singular for Eve. Yeah. Um, so the message is they will be saved. They will get their salvation through the childbearing. There's a the there. Yeah. Um, there's only one child that was born. That actually from, matters. Yeah, that yeah. matters and who saves the entire world, women included. 
So again, this is this last part. It's a gender specific, but not gender exclusive. And you also have the issue. Men too. can be saved too. Yeah, and you also have the issue of what follows perfectly from if they abide in in faith and in love and sanctification with with all the sorts of stuff. And that is a response to the Christ gift, the Christ, the Messiah, who came through the woman to obliterate and annihilate the devil and the works of sin and death and suffering. Yeah, and we'll remember too. That's really what Paul's been talking about in the first part. Yeah. Of um, chapter two. Yeah. And this is not a separate gospel or a different gospel. This is the gospel. The resurrection of Messiah is the annihilation of sin and death. And these women are participants in that through the childbirth of, well, if they abide in faith and hope and all those sorts of things, they are participating in the life of Messiah. So it is an empowering passage. It is not referring to their absolute silence, their absolute subjection. And instead it says, no, you are not to dominate another person. You do not get to claim ultimate priority over another person. Yeah. In fact, it says, no, you, Eve did the same thing. You don't get to do that. Mutuality is Edenic. It is the goal of what God wants for men and women. Same, I think if men were doing the same thing, Paul would say the same thing well, to men. Well, and he does. He, he already does. Her. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really, what is this passage about? What is God, what is God trying to teach us through this passage? And it's a shame that, so much of this has to be defending against um, interpretations that take rip this passage out of context and um, against, um, I guess, really church practices that seem to base a whole way of um, keeping women from preaching and teaching based off of this one verse. Um, and, you know, they have other ones in there, too, but this is the one that they oftentimes go into. When this is such a beautiful passage about how we the people of God can live peaceful and quiet lives, how we can be godly and holy. Um, and that's something that, you know, there were some situations that are more pressing in, um, or I guess you could say manifestations of the negative behavior and the positive behavior that were specific to Paul's context, like the braided hair, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we maybe don't struggle with as much, but we have our own versions of that. Hmm. Um, I think, what we really need to all do is just um, listen to what God is communicating through the text and try our best to apply with the overall messages. And um, that doesn't mean we can ignore parts that are difficult or things that don't make um, sense to us. You know, some things come later.